to revisit Job again this week. We're going to be looking at probably the largest portion of scripture that I've ever tried to tackle in one sermon. So we're not going to look at this in a verse by verse way. We're not going to try and draw out even many dynamics of of the text in in sequential order. We're going to just look at the big themes, the big voice of Job and and the theology behind this, this book. Just to recap, we we mentioned last week that we know not uh, very much, we know very little about this book, about who wrote it, about who it was written for, about when it was written. But there are indicators within the text which can give us hints and clues. And, And it's important for us when we're reading the Bible to read the Bible in that way, to try and look for indicators in the text that can give us information. We know from these indicators that it was possibly written during the the patriarch era, so during the time of Abraham, Um, or at least written, we we can tell, about the patriarch era. How can we tell that? Well, we see that this is a time of pre-temple worship. Job himself is operating as a priest over his household. We also get the sense that his wealth is being defined by the livestock that he, he owns. We know that this text contains uh, possibly real events orally passed down through generations, then maybe perhaps uh, written during the the era of Solomon. So if it wasn't written in the moment, then it might have been written centuries later based upon real events that have been passed down orally. This was the period for, for wisdom, literature and poetry. So, a strong case to be made that it was written then. Some might argue that this is actually fictional events that are recorded. And when we hear that idea of it being a fictional text, we don't misunderstand what we mean by that in the sense that it doesn't diminish the quality of what's there, but actually this is uh, perhaps a fictional character with fictional events, but but purposed to convey theological truth. And we'll think about that more this week and also next week when we think about the theology of Job. When we say fictional, we might also um, get the sense of it being um, crafted out of of nothing but imagination. But again, when we look at the, 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 the content of Job, we see that it is reflecting the reality of the time that it is purposed to be written in. What we do know is that uh, the word tells us that Job was the greatest man in the East. And and that phrase, in the East, uh, suggests to us that this was possibly um, situated 
east of Damascus, maybe down through modern-day Syria into Iran and maybe into Arabia. So covering a large scope of, it, of, of, uh, of land here. And it's fair to say, I think, when we think about our text for the year as a church, and that is that Job is the greatest um, example uh, in this moment um, for someone who lived out the greatest commandment. This commandment to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind and strength, and from that place to love his neighbour as himself. Last week we considered the questions that are raised by by chapter 1 verses 6 to 12, the questions about Satan's access to God's throne room, to why did God suggest that Satan consider Job? What does verse 12 imply about Satan's access to Job? And, And why do bad things happen to seemingly good people? And I would say that that last question is the question that Job and his friends wrestle with the most in the chapters that follow from chapter 2 right through to chapter 37. Why do good people seemingly have to struggle and suffer in, in, in the same ways that wicked people do? And it's one of the main thrusts of what uh, the text of Job is trying to communicate. It's important for us to to remember that we're marking a moment in time here and just because something played out in a certain way in the past and even in scripture, that doesn't mean that it will repeat that way in the future. That this text is not necessarily normative. Now, we know that God doesn't change. God doesn't change, but His interaction with humanity is framed by his covenants and his promises. So while he doesn't change, his interaction with humanity does change over time. We see, for example, with the flood, when God makes the promise never to flood the earth again. That's him establishing a covenant to say, here are the boundaries that I'm now going to operate in in with humanity. And then with regard to worship, we see throughout the history of humanity there have been certain dynamics of worship that have remained, but but the vehicles uh, have shifted. So we had, of course, animal sacrifice, which was up until the end of the temple period. And then what we find, of course, is that Jesus Christ is the perfect lamb sacrifice, and therefore there's no need for animal sacrifice beyond that point. God doesn't change, but but his interaction with humanity changes with new covenants. And also, we've got to think about the limitations that he placed upon Satan. Now, we touched on that question from Job 1 verse 12. What does verse 12 imply about Satan's access to Job? Well, it tells us that God places limitations upon Satan's access to people. We also see that uh, in Revelation 20 verse 2 that Satan is bound by God. And so the interaction of God with humanity and Satan with humanity does change throughout time. It's also important to emphasise, and this follows on naturally from the the idea that Job isn't a normative uh, text, is that Job is also descriptive and not prescriptive. Now, these are all words, perhaps, that you, you, you don't 
think about very often. But when we interpret the Bible, we have to remember to, to look at it and say, is this text describing something or is it prescribing something? For example, if somebody is crying out to God in their frustration because God seems so far away and so distant, that's describing how the person feels. But that isn't prescribing the idea that God is actually really far away. So Job is a text that is describing what's unfolding, but not necessarily laying out for us again what is normative, what will always unfold. The text itself describes events. Now, whether they're historical or or not, their purpose to convey truth. And and Job, I don't believe, as a text, is ever trying to lay out a prescription of how things will always happen. That said, there are theological truths that are, are constant, and we see them in the text of Job. And I think that's why... We have the text of Job. One of the main reasons we have it in the canon is because there are theological truths that are consistent. For example, the call to live righteously, just as Job does. Uh, And also the response to what happens in in Job's life. How does Job respond? Well, what does it say in chapter 1? It tells us that when Job heard that his children had died, he fell to the ground. In his anguish, he fell to the ground and he worshipped God. Incredible. Then we also see, of course, the mission of Satan, the primary mission of Satan to steal, kill and destroy. That is a theological truth that is found in the text of Job. We see it laid out plain in the text of Job. And then also that God is sovereign over everything. Massive, massive theological truth that we find in the text of Job, which of course is emphasised throughout the rest of the word. So yeah, whilst Job isn't, isn't prescriptive, it describes what's unfolding, but it is also laying out fundamental theological themes and truths for us. And and. We've got to be very careful with the text of Job, with all of that in mind. And that is that we don't try and just reduce this text down to a simple formula for life and then totally miss the point of the text. We can't reduce this text down to a simple formula. And and the reason I say that is because we're living in a fallen world and life is not as simple uh, as perhaps we would like it to be. Have you ever uttered these words in your life? Oh, come on, that's simple. That's easy. I remember we we got a bike for our eldest daughter uh, a few weeks ago and and the guy came out uh, with the bike. We put it in the boot of the car and Helen called to me and said, "Uh, Stuart, come and look at this just so that you know how to get the wheels off. And, uh, And I uttered the words, I don't need to. It's easy. It's simple. I know how to do it. And then what happened was I went to the back of the car. The guy showed me how to do it. Great. You know, and I went home, tried it myself and realised that there were more moving parts going on than I had anticipated. So it wasn't quite as simple as I had uh, expected it to be. Uh, Maybe you can relate to that, your own examples. Maybe when you've bought a piece of furniture and you've looked at it in the the shop and thought, well, that looks easy to build. You get home, open the instructions, then realise, actually, that doesn't quite look as simple as I thought. Unexpected things arise uh, in our day. Uh, unexpected things arise generally in different seasons of our lives. Life 
on earth isn't a neat formula. It's not like a slot machine where if I do X, then I will always get Y. There are so many variables in the world. And with that, we have to remember that there is a a profound mystery to God. A profound mystery to God. We know a great deal about God's character, about his interactions with humanity throughout history. We've talked about the idea of him establishing covenants and therefore we get a sense of how he's going to interact. Um, as As we look at his word, we get a sense of what he would do in certain situations. We can make a lot of solid and safe assumptions about God's perspective on things from his word. But... The Bible also makes it clear that God is other, (laughs) that his ways are, are higher than our ways. His perspective on the big picture is greater than our limited and restricted perspective on life. And even today, talking about new covenants and new new phases of interaction that God has with humanity. With us being filled and equipped by the Spirit, we still don't see everything clearly. We know um, uh, uh, that Paul writes um, that, that we see things in part, as if looking through a glass darkly. That's what the King James phrases that dynamic as. That between the first and second coming of Christ, yeah, we have the Spirit, so we have, uh, we have access to greater levels of, of understanding, but we don't see everything fully and perfectly clearly yet. And, and again, that reminds us of a distinction between humanity and God. God knows all things, sees all things from the beginning to the end of time. And he, he knows every event, how every event impacts the other. And so we remember that God is other. God is greater, God is bigger, God sees things in a different way than we see things. He sees the layers and levels and and dynamics and facets of things that we just cannot see. Um, What might look like a tragedy in the now might actually bear incredible fruit in the future. We know that God uses all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So God is is greater than we are, of course. That distinguishes us from him as one dynamic of what distinguishes us from him and also what motivates us to worship him because he is greater. Now that doesn't mean that in this life and on this imperfect earth we're going to have a a smooth life. I think we can all testify to the fact that we've all been through times where we haven't had uh, a smooth life time of it. And even though that is true, even though that we don't uh, encounter uh, uh, the simple formulas and and smooth dynamics of life, even as, as children of God, we know the conversation is even more complicated because of the, the covenant that we live in and the spirit that is in us. We're going to come to that, of course, in the, in the rest of the session and also next week and in the weeks ahead. We must remember, though, that we cannot reduce God's interaction with humanity down to a simple formula, as if God is a slot machine 
Job 38, uh, chapter 38 and onwards, it reveals that to us where God speaks. Finally, we might say God speaks. I think the prosperity gospel of, of predominantly of the West, um, has to a, a lesser or greater degree reduced God down to, to a simple formula. And we've got to be very careful not to do that. We can ask questions at this point and say, well, is God good? And the answer is absolutely. Is he consistent? Absolutely. But does he understand better than us why bad things happen to seemingly good people? Absolutely. God invites us to trust him even when we, with our limited perspective, don't understand what is unfolding. And this is one of the greatest challenges of our faith. That we we hold in tension the fact that we're going through challenge, but we are children of God, a God who is good and who is faithful and consistent and unchanging. And that's why the question arises, why are we going through this? struggle. One of the main reasons Job contains such this wrestle and and this struggle is because of the theology that was at play at the time. Job and his friends, we know, are not part of uh, the nation of Israel. They're not Jews. And so they're trying to understand the world and their lives based on, on, on some basic assumptions. Now, these basic assumptions are are somewhat accurate. We've seen that, that people came off the ark um, with some pretty good assumptions about how to conduct themselves. For example, we know that because Noah sacrificed uh, an offering after coming off the ark, we see that that pattern of honouring God through sacrifice has continued. From there, we know, of course, that Abraham did it. We know that Job was sacrificing an offering for his children when he thought that they had sinned. So so there's a lot of good things that came off the ark with uh, with these people. And, and also, therefore, there are assumptions about how God operates generally that these people were, were living with. But they're, they're general assumptions and they don't take into account the full picture. Job and his friends are, are living in a worldview that says that if you are good, you will prosper. And if you're wicked, you won't prosper. That if you are prosperous, it's because of your goodness. And if you um, are, are struggling and suffering, it's because of your wickedness. Now, this has been framed as retribution theology. Um, and there are elements of truth in that perspective. That if you are good, you'll prosper. And if you are wicked, you will uh, suffer. There's elements of truth in that. For example, the truth is that we do live in a moral universe. A universe that was established by a moral creator, God. We only need to look at Psalm chapter 1. So just after Job, we turn to Psalm chapter 1 and we get this sense of this idea of of the, the righteous people benefiting and the wicked suffering. Psalm chapter 1 and verse 6. For the the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. 
So you could say about Job and his friends that the worldview they had was was pretty accurate. Psalm 34, let's turn over a few pages. Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. We have here, it says, Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. So this idea of this world view of if you do good, you will be blessed and if you do what is uh, wicked, you will, will suffer. There is truth in that. We could also equate that that idea to the New Testament principle, well, maybe an age-old principle, but emphasised in the New Testament of sowing and reaping. Often that is in the context of, of money when it's spoken about in a church. But this idea that whatever you sow in life, you will reap. So if you sow righteousness, you will reap righteousness. And if you sow wickedness, you will reap wickedness. We see Jesus in Mark 4. Mark 4, Jesus says that by the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And then we see Paul in Galatians chapter 6, this voice that says, Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap destruction. But if you sow to the Spirit, then of course you will reap the blessing that comes from that. We could simplify it down even more and say, yeah, there's maybe a cause and effect dynamic at play here. We see God in his covenants. For example, Genesis 12, talking to Abraham. If you do X, then I will do Y. Psalm 91, that that psalm that's probably been read more over the past year than, than in recent history, um, says, he who dwells in the shelter or the shadow of the Most High. There's the, if you do this. And then, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. So that call on people to do the right thing and therefore reap the reward from it. There is a biblical basis for sowing and reaping, cause and effect, blessing and cursing. And Job and his friends have a a concept of that. But they're wrestling. They're wrestling over that because Job was righteous. Job was a righteous man. And how how is this happening to him? Well, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, are convinced that because of the disaster that's befallen Job, he must be reaping what he's sown. That all of this tragedy must be the result of some sin that Job has has conducted or, or committed. Job is reaping what he has sown. But but we've got a problem here, and that is that Job already has been called the greatest man in the East, chapter 1. And then further on in chapter 1, God says he's a man of perfect integrity. So how do you square these two things up? That if you reap what you sow, here you have a man of perfect integrity. How is it that he is suffering? 
How do you square these two things up? Well, ultimately, the message of Job is that we can't. We can't square these things up, perhaps to our satisfaction. It's not as simple as as living in a vacuum of only the good things happening to righteous people and the bad things happening to the wicked. Why is it not that simple? Well, there's four factors at play, at least. Let me share them. The first factor, of course, is we're living in a fallen world and that problems are arising from uh, the, the consequence or out of sin. But then, on the flip side, it's still God's world and, and therefore everyone still has access to the common grace that is poured out on the world for humanity to benefit from. So here you have people are going to be struggling and, and encountering blessing and provision. You've also got this idea, biblical idea, this call to sow righteousness and you will reap good rewards. So there is that truth and dynamic at play that whilst we're in a fallen world, we're going to struggle. Jesus says that in this world you will face many trials, many challenges, you will suffer. But if you sow, then if you sow righteousness, you will reap great rewards. But the other, the fourth dynamic is that if you sow wickedness, you will also reap destruction. So there's loads of dynamics at play here. We also know that if you sow righteousness, it will bless somebody else. That will transform their circumstance. But if you sow wickedness, it might damage, hurt, traumatize somebody else's circumstance. There's so much going on in this created world. And then, beyond that, we've got this dynamic of covenant again that we mentioned earlier on. God established a new covenant with humanity. It impacts how um, covenant people interact with the fallen world. The spirit living in God's people can also impact the fallen world around them. So it's never quite as simple as if I only do X, then I will always receive Y. What's one of the main mistakes that Job's friends make between chapters 2 and 37? Well, it's all linked to this idea of retribution theology. One of the main mistakes they make. Let me read a few portions of Job to you and see if you can start to draw out this idea of retribution theology and the mistakes that they make. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. This is Eliphaz speaking to to Job. He says, Consider who has perished when he was innocent. Where have the honest been destroyed? In my experience, those who who plough injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. They perish at a single blast from God and come to an end by the breath of his nostrils. There you go. Retribution theology. The The question there is, um, who has perished when he was innocent? Well, his, his assumption would be nobody. His other question, where have the honest been destroyed? His, his assumption would be, it hasn't happened. In my experience, he says, those who plough injustice reap the same. 
So that's Eliphaz. What about Bildad? Let's look at Bildad in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 1 to, to 6. Bildad the Shuhite replied, How long will you go on saying these things? So Job is obviously pouring out his heart, uh, crying out to God. Your words are a blast of wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Since your children sinned against him, he gave them over to their rebellion. So there you go. That idea that the children that died were only getting what they deserved. That's that misplaced understanding of God's moral universe, moral creation. Verse 5, but if you earnestly seek God and ask the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, then he will move even now on your behalf and restore the home where your righteousness dwells. So there we are. Bildad saying to Job, come on Job, if only you would admit that you're a sinner, admit that this is a consequence of your sin, then you'll get everything restored. It's not as simple as that. One of the mistakes that Job's friends make is they don't just assume that everything you sow will uh, impact what you reap. That's a thoroughly biblical understanding. Whatever you sow, you will reap. They also assume that everything you reap is a result of what you've sown. Can you see the difference in that? Not just that what you sow impacts what you reap, but actually everything you reap is a consequence of everything you have sown. Why do bad things happen to seemingly good people? Well, let's look at John chapter 9. I find this this little portion of, of scripture here is really helpful in this topic. John chapter 9, verses 1 through to 3. Jesus is talking, um, walking and talking, and they encounter a man born blind. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Now again, this is the continuation of this narrow view of because he's blind, that's what he's reaped. Somebody must have sown in order for that to happen. That this is a consequence of sin. So who sinned? Jesus replied, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered. Now is that true? Is that man free of all sin? No. Were his parents free of all sin? No. What point is Jesus trying to make here? He's trying to say that the blindness is not a result of anyone's sin. Jesus continues, This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. And I think that is one of the main thrusts of the text of Job that God's works might be established, demonstrated, displayed through him. The true heart of what is going on here in, in the book of Job, that he's not reaping destruction because of what he's sown. We've heard that he's righteous, upright. So he's not reaping destruction because of what he's sown, but rather he's suffering at the hands of the one whose primary mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. 
we know who that is. And the manner in which he responds to such a challenge, the manner in which Job responds to this incredible challenge, ultimately brings glory to God. What was it that Satan said right back at the start? He said, let me find it here, verse number 9 of chapter 1. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? Satan here is implying that Job is only praising God because everything's going fine. What does the text of Job show us? That Job perseveres in his faith even when everything falls apart around him. He holds true to faithfulness and it brings glory to God. What else does it do? It demonstrates that Satan is a liar. He doesn't understand humanity, that he is deceitful and ultimately that he will be humiliated. In the midst of of our trials, I want to encourage us, God is at work. He's at work bringing out something incredible, of incredible significance. Now that sounds really flippant for me to say that, but I do believe that that is true from the word of Scripture, the voice of Scripture, that God is working in our trials to bring something of richness out of them. We might not see the richness. We might not ever understand the richness this side of eternity. But to have faith in God is to trust him even in the midst of these unanswered questions. It's not easy. It's not even comfortable. But we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken society. We see the consequence of sin all around us. And yet we do encounter the goodness and grace of God And, importantly, we look to Jesus, who has made a way for us, a way for us to eternity, and a way from all of these struggles and trials that that we encounter. Next week, we'll think about a few different dynamics of this to close off our our limited focus on, on Job. We'll look at how God responds to Job's complaints. We'll look at how God responds to Job's friends. We'll also think about what the the picture of true friendship actually looks like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to get into your word. We thank you for the fact that Job lays out for us how to live and how not to live how to understand you and how not to understand you. We don't have all our questions answered, God. We know that Job doesn't give us that kind of certainty, but you do teach us, God, through this text, so much of value and worth. And we want to give you thanks for that, God. In the mighty name of Jesus.